Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter, if you would. Easter every day, that's what I want to talk about tonight. Get ready for celebrating the Lord's resurrection. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly or or righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The word is literally wood. That he might die to sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, stripes, some translations say, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now returned, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What is, when is Easter, I should say? If you answered that question, you might come to what, you might say what comes to your mind first. April 21st is Easter this year. But what if I told you, as I said before, Easter is every day? In what sense? Well, what if I told you that what Jesus did on that Passion Weekend all those years ago could not possibly be contained or limited in its time or scope? While it is true, I I thought to myself this week that Easter is an event that only occurred once all those years ago. It's certainly also true that its effects are still happening today. And we would pray that those Easter effects would happen every day. So what is Easter? Um, You might say that Easter is the story in the Bible, the true story about Jesus' death and resurrection for my sins. But what if I told you that Easter is also about your death and resurrection to sin? What if I told you that the cross is not only God's means of our salvation, but also the means of our sanctification? What if the cross is not only God's means of how to get resurrection life, but it's also his model about how to live resurrection life? Where is Easter? You might say, well, Easter was right outside the city walls of Jerusalem, Pastor Walker, and we'll celebrate it in our church. But what if I told you that the Bible meant for us to celebrate it every day, everywhere? When it comes to its effects, it should be taking place every day in our society, in our jobs, in our homes, everywhere. So let me say to you tonight that Easter is not just an annual event. Although it is that, 
It's a way of life. I read through the entire epistle of 1 Peter this week, and what I remembered and thought to be true, I found to be true even more so than I remembered. And that is that Peter talks about the death of Jesus Christ in some fashion in every single chapter of 1 Peter. There is not one chapter. I wrote them down. Chapter 1, verse 2, 3, 11, 18, 19, 2, 21 through 24, 3, 14, 21, 4, 13, 5, 1. All of those times are some sort of aspect about Jesus dying on Good Friday. But as I read all of those verses again, here's what I found out, that most of what it talks about when it talks about Jesus' death, is not what it did for you and I to receive forgiveness so we could go to heaven. Although that is true, and it is mentioned in the early part of 1 Peter. But you know what it talked about? It talked about what Jesus did on the cross as the model for how that we live our lives. And in 1 Peter, as an epistle, specifically on how that we suffer as Christians and respond to it. In other words, how do you live rightly when you have been treated wrongly? And that's what the cross addresses in 1 Peter when it talks about Jesus' death, and then twice it talks about his resurrection. And you put all those passages together, so when you talk about Easter, in 1 Peter anyways, it wasn't so much about what happens to us when we go to heaven, but rather the cross and the resurrection is what happens through us while we're still on earth. Amazing. So Easter is not an event to be relegated far off in the future or to be celebrated once a year. And it's not to be put in our minds as something that happened way in the past with way in the future ramifications, although all those things are true. But primarily in 1 Peter, and I would say to you in the entire New Testament, that the cross, death, and resurrection of Jesus is far more than that. It's more than that. It is the model about how we live our lives, and I would say the Easter effect every single day. In fact, in our passage, there is a profoundly moving statement, if you'll read it and let it hit you. In fact, Charles Sheldon wrote a book a long time ago, um, maybe more of a social Christian-ish type book. Um, Not a lot of great things about the gospel per se in there, but... He did say that he read this book, this verse, and it moved him to write the book. And the book is about a guy who is homeless, and he goes around all the businesses and things in a town and a community. He asks for help, but no one gives him any help. No one gives him hardly any food. No one gives him any clothes. No one gives him any money or shelter. And he asks all around. And all these things, most of these businesses are by people who, quote-unquote, are Christians who attend this large church in town where everybody pretty much goes. So after being spurned for a week or two, the service is taking place in church. If you've ever read the book, the guy in the middle of the church service comes down the aisle, stops the pastor's sermon, and tells them basically, hey, if this is what Jesus is like, really, in other words, where is it? You talk about it and you do it. He says, but where it really is Jesus? And that's the kind of the WWJD movement. Remember that? It kind of spawned off of that sort of thing. But that was the question asked in that book. In other words, the cross is not just something that just buys us a ticket to heaven. It helps us to live how he would want us to live here on earth. And that little phrase is found, and I'll read it for you again. For to this you've been called. Here's the Easter, because all Christ suffered for you. 
That's dying. Jesus died for you, he says, on the cross. And, and what is that? Leaving you an example. Not just saying, hey, leaving you to do what you want the rest of your life till you go to heaven. No, he left you an example. And the word is hupogrammaton. And it means when a kid was writing and learning to write, when they were very little, they would have a pattern on the top and they would write over it. So they would learn to draw the letters and things correctly by following the pattern. That's the word. Jesus says, you know what my cross death is? It is the template by which you put your life on and you draw over it so you can learn to be like me. That's the cross. That's what Easter's about. So he says, here's what you need to do. He says, you've been called to what? I've left you an example. And here's what Sheldon said. So that you would follow his steps. Literally footprints. So the idea is, here's how Jesus walked, and you look at his footprints, and you step in them. In other words, you want to do like he did, and you want to be like he was, and you want to act like he, that's the idea. So when you look at the cross this Easter, don't just say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did in the past through your cross. Tell him this, and keep doing more of it in the present, in my life, through that very same cross. So when it comes to Easter, I put in my notes tonight, Easter always asks two questions. If you look at the cross at Easter, non-Christians should ask this question. Do you have Jesus? That's what the cross is. I'm going to preach a message for Easter, and I'm almost already done with it, actually. And the thief looks at Jesus, and he realizes he doesn't have him. But somehow, crazy enough, with thorns on his head, nails in his in his wrists and in his feet, and flogged to the point where you can't recognize him. This thief, by the way, which is not thief like I stole something from your house. It's the Greek word lestai. It's a, he's, a, he's an insurrectionist. He's a rebellion. He's against Rome. and he, he must have killed a Roman soldier, and they get crucified for that if you get caught. That's who these two guys hanging on him. Jesus was hanged for the same reason. He was an insurrectionist. He challenged Caesar by saying that he was king of the Jews. That's why it says it on top. The three of them together are crucified as rebels, insurrectionists against Rome. That was the criminal offense. That was the capital offense. But somehow this thief looks at Jesus in that unbelievably shameful and awful condition and on his own comes up with this question. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, how do you look at Jesus and say, that's a king? But see, that's what the cross does. You have to see Jesus there and you have to ask the question, what do I see when I look at him? Do I have Jesus? But for Christians... The question of the cross is different. See, the unsaved person says, do, do you have Jesus? Do I have Jesus? You have to ask the Christian, does Jesus have me? See? And that's what Peter wants to know tonight. See, Easter, don't just say Easter's for all these lost people I'm inviting and I want them to come. Oh, that's true and that's fantastic. It is. But Easter's for you and me. It's to ask the question, do I have does Jesus have me? Not only do I, do I have Jesus, but does, do, does Jesus have me? So the cross for the non-Christian is about forgiveness. The cross for the Christian is about following. Following his steps. For the non-Christian, Easter is about getting a relationship. 
For the Christian, it's about checking on your discipleship. Because Jesus says, if you can look at the cross, and this isn't who you are, and this isn't part of your life, you have to question whether you're following me or not. So Jesus on his cross is not only our mediator, he is our model. He's left us, listen, hear him, he's left us an example, an example to follow. What is that example? Well, I want to show you tonight how you and I can live out Easter every single day in our lives. If you have a pen, it's worth it, in my estimation. I did it this week. Let me show you the framework of this passage. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 18-25, it is very well put together grammatically. And if you can see the points that he's making, it makes it all so much more clear. Okay, let me give them to you. This paragraph falls in a context of how to live out your life as a Christian among Gentiles. Can you turn back and I'm going to follow you, make you follow me through it. 2.12, 1 Peter 2.12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Okay, that's the command. All right, now he's going to show you in the verses to follow what an honorable conduct as Christians among non-Christians would look like. Okay, and the first and main, can I say this, the main active verb throughout the rest of this book that describes the main quality that you and I as Christians need to have in an unsaved world. And I want you to add a little addendum here before I go any further. I want you to think about this because 1 Peter is for Christians who are suffering and being persecuted. And when I was first come here 20 years ago, I never believed in my life that I would suffer for being a Christian in America, but I think I was wrong. I tell the guys in our office all the time that I won't be surprised that we are arrested before we die in this country. I would guess that things will so rapidly change in the next 20 years that I'm hoping that you will come and visit me. And I don't say that really in humor. That's where we're headed it's, you know what the time is? The time is now in our lives to be able to say, this is what I believe and this is what the Bible says. And I stand up for that. And here's how, but how am I going to live in a culture and a society that's about as anti-God and anti-Bible that it's going to be? Here's what he says. Here's the verb that shows you how. Ready? Verse 13 be subject, circle it, because it is the keynote for the rest of the book, okay? Be subject. Now, he tells that to everyone, to the government, first paragraph. Our paragraph picks up the same verb to start off like it does this paragraph. Circle it in 2.18, ready? Different noun, different people group he's talking to, in general, to everybody, to the government, which, by the way, was headed up by Nero, who burned and persecuted Christians. So put that in your context of your mind. Okay? So the next one is servants. Same, watch. Be subject to your masters. So now we're getting this broad thing out society at large. Now we're honing in, we would say, today in application to where you work. But for them, it was where they live, basically. Masters to servants. And by the way, he tells you servants that are masters that are good and those that are harsh. In other words, those who are nice to you and those that beat the tar out of you. Hmm. Okay, 
chapter 3, we're going to hone it down even more narrow. Remember that verb, be subject or submissive? Look at wives in your own homes. Likewise, wives, see it? Be subject to your husbands. See what he's saying? This is the keynote. How do Christians act in a Gentile world where everybody's starting to be against you? Here's how you do. It's not power over, hear me, it's power under. And it doesn't matter whether it's the government that has the authority. It doesn't matter whether your master who has the authority. It doesn't matter if it's your unbelieving husband, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, who has authority. Here's what the answer is. Power under. Be submissive. And of course, he can't be done because he picks it up at the end of the book. And he wants everybody to remember because he reminds them. And he says, chapter 5 and verse 5, likewise you are her younger. By the way, not just for the adults who are seasoned veterans at all of this, even the younger ones. Here's what he says. Be subject. So in society, yes. To your masters, yes. And then he would say, in your homes, yes. In God's house, yes. Everywhere. Inside the church, outside the church. This is how Christians conduct themselves. We are known to be people who power under Right? That's what this is about. And so he adds all of these, and I'm going to listen to you, don't, don't circle or anything. 218, 19, twice in 220, twice in 221, six verbs in a row in our little passage. He uses words that have a prefix hypo on the front. Hypoallergenic, hypodermic needle. <laughs> you know, hypo means to be underneath. Hypodermic, I think, means under your skin, right? That's where the needle goes, right? Hypo means under. Hyper means over. Hyper is not used in this text. You know the only time in 1 Peter the word hyper, the word with hyper and the prefix is used when it says, you submit and humble yourselves under God and he will exalt you in due time. In other words, God will do the lifting up. You know what your job is? The putting down. That's hard. That's what Paul, I mean, Peter says, God says is our responsibility. Here's what it can be summarized by it's a lot of things, but here's the main thing. You know what it is? Get low and stay there. Get low and stay there. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty rough. I mean, if I have a boss at work, Here's what he say. He says, get low and stay there. If you have an unbelieving spouse, a husband, get low and stay there. You know what? We have a problem with that in our culture. American is a privatized, spirituality, uh, individualistic, westernized culture that far more emphasizes me over we. So everybody today, no matter who you are, no matter how outrageous it has become, stands up and fights for their rights. That's what the culture, and everybody's sensitive to everything you say and everything you, it's the way our culture is. And so the average, normal, natural response is when someone does that to you is that you're going to say something back. And it's so easy to power over people. But Jesus says what my people are like and are so different from everybody else is that we are a power under people. Now he's going to say, and what would it look like if you did that? Pastor Walker, how far would I have to go with that? Am I supposed to be a mat for someone to walk over? Am I supposed to never have any rights? Am I never to speak for myself? That's where 1 Peter 2 comes in. 
So here's what he's going to do. Remember I told you, be subject, be subject, be subject, be subject. R starts with be subject. And now watch. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, verse 18, not only to the good, but to the gentle, I mean, and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, in your, here's the framework. Take your pen and, and circle all of these. First word of verse 19 is the word for. Verse 20 is the word for. Verse 21 is the word for. Verse 25 is the verse for. The word for. Now, you know what he's going to do? He's going to give you four reasons. <laughs> kind of worked that way. Four reasons, right? F-O-U-R. He's going to use it four, four of those F-O-R four times. And those are all reasons about why you should subject yourselves to worldly authorities. Okay? Here we go. Number one, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 2, second one. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you're doing wrong and you're rebelling against your master, if you're not obeying the government, if you're really against your husband's authority that God has given in your life, he goes, and you get in trouble for it, what good is it? And you endure it. You're not enduring it because you did good. He goes, but when you are beaten or hurt or mistreated because you're doing what is right, then it has some value or credit. And then he gets to the one that I want to concentrate on. Verse 21. Third use of the little word for, the connector. For to this you have been called. This is, can I park there for a second? When you are called by God to something, it is not optional. It is not something that you can marginalize in your life as if it isn't that big of a deal. It's not something you can push to the side and say when I get around to it. No, when you're called to something in the Bible, it's something that marks you. It's something that characterizes what you're like every day because this is what God called you to. It's part of what it means to know him. It's the way that you live it out, he would say. In fact, he's going to say it again in a very particular way. Over in chapter 3, verse 9, same admonitions he's going to give you by the example of Jesus. He says, now I want you to do this. Ready? Verse 9, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless people. In other words, someone cusses at you, don't cuss back. Someone screams and yells at you at work, don't scream and yell back. You know what he says? Instead, on the opposite, he says, bless them. They curse you, you bless them. Why would we do it that way? Ready? For to this you were called. That's what it means to know Jesus. He's on the cross, and they're saying to him, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Save yourself, and we'll believe you. And he says what in return? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. See, they are cursing him, and he is blessing them. He says, you know what? We follow the steps of Jesus. The Calvary steps, the Via Dolorosa steps, the way of suffering steps. He says, that's what we follow. So he says in verse 21, for to this you have been called. Why have you been called to this? Because Christ was called to it. Because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now stay with me. What did he do? What is the primary example that he gives for us about how to respond rightly when you are treated wrongly? 
I want to show it to you because it's the hardest one. If you have your Bible, turn back to Isaiah. He is going to put together a little string of paraphrases that are taken from Isaiah 53. You may not be familiar with this concept, but Isaiah, in the middle portion of the latter half of the book, has what's called four servant songs. Okay? They are four servant songs about the coming servant that would be the Messiah. And the 50, chapter 53 is in the middle of one that's called the suffering servant. And that's why Peter quotes from it, because he wants them to say, hey, Suffering is part of my calling because I'm a Christian and because Jesus had suffering as part of his calling. So if I follow in his steps, I shouldn't be shocked when that happens to me. Okay, let me read the text again and then we're going to go back to Isaiah. Ready? He says, he committed no sin and circle this and I'll tell you why. We're going to come back to it. Neither was deceit, circle this, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Imagine being on the cross. I gotta find a paper here. You're on the cross. You have been beaten, literally, where most floggings with a cat of nine tails, with a professional whipper, and you are tied naked to a post with your arms crossed, chained, and you can't barely move. And sometimes they change your legs too, so you couldn't move them. And so you were beaten with one cat of nine tails with nine pieces of rope with glass and cut stone in it would come from the one side and wrap around your body and it would be paused for a second and then they would tear it back across. And then as soon as that one was done, the one came from the other side, would grab into your flesh. And, and that was, according to Jewish law, 39 of 39. I mean, you say 39 and that's just amazing. Romans had no rules. I don't know how many times Jesus was flogged. Uh, Paul, who if he was here, would take his shirt off for you and show you that his body was probably mangled because he was flogged five times with 39 stripes, which means, by the way, if I have my math correctly, that's 195 times he was beaten with a stroke like that. Imagine that. Jesus was flogged, and then he was taken, and he was whipped all the way up the long street, carrying the cross beam having to tilt it from side to side down the narrow streets. And he would have gone the way of suffering, which would have totally drained every ounce of his energy. By the time he would have got up to, if it's where I think it was, the hill outside of the city walls, which would have been a terrible climb to have to make in that condition with that. And he would have got there, they would have thrown him on the ground, and they would have nailed him right through his wrists into the tree, as the passage says, through the wrist and not through the palms because the palms, you would have ripped your hands out of them because the nails would have ripped up through here. Because the reason it has to be on your palms is because when you're on the cross and your feet are crossed over one on top of the other and you're sitting on what Latin word is this called a sedile. And you sit on this little piece of wood and underneath it and you push up on the foot that's been nailed through the top of it into the bottom one and you take your wrist and you grab around the nails and so that you can pull yourself up. Because if you don't pull yourself up every so often and push up off the seat, you'll asphyxiate yourself and you'll suffocate. So that's why Jesus' seven words on the cross are very short, little staccato-like terse statements. Because he doesn't have enough air to say sentences. You know, so he says little words, like three or four word sentences, because he's fighting all the time. So you are practically three quarters dead with all the beating and everything else. And every few seconds, you're pulling yourself up 
after your bones were put out of joint when they crammed your cross into the hole and let it dropped in there. So you're pulling yourself up properly with some bones out of joint and everything else is aching and you're bleeding profusely. Not to mention the fact you're completely naked on a public highway where people are watching. And I'll leave it at that because there's more. So imagine all the people who are doing this to you are standing there, right? And it says this. There, he didn't sin. Now do you get it? There was no deceit found in his mouth. Back in Isaiah chapter 53, let me read the text that Peter's quoting from. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now he says this. Now watch, circle it. Yet he opened, see circle it, not his mouth. He's going to say it again at the end of this verse. So he opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. Again, he's going to say it a third time, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And here's what Peter says. And there was no deceit, third time, in his mouth. You know how hard it is when you are languishing and every moment you feel like you are being tortured, you're barely breathing, you are in agony and shame beyond description not to lash out i have read and it's not a lot of fun i did it historically because i wanted to find out i have read the scripts or so to speak or the communicated language of people even the most religious jewish people who were crucified and they were crucified by the thousands and even the most righteous people on the cross in between saying the shema of all things it was considered the greatest privilege if you were Jewish and you died on a Roman cross to be able to say the Shema while you're dying on it. But many guys did that, but they also were, were saying all kinds of horrible things to their persecution. I mean, what we would consider horrible profanity, just reaming them up upside and down the other to the Romans the last second because they're their enemies. But that isn't Jesus. Listen, he's the son of God. If there's everyone, if there ever has been anyone who was treated wrongfully when they were right, it was him. But it says in our passage, there was no deceit in his mouth. And notice all the verbal terms. When he was reviled, that's a verbal term. He didn't revile in return. When they said awful things about him, he didn't say awful things back. Remember, he's dying on the cross and they're doing it to him. It says, when he suffered, he didn't, watch, he didn't threaten, that's a verbal term. He didn't say, wait till I die and come back from the grave. Then you're going to get yours. He didn't say that. He could have. Now listen, throw that in with all of the ways Jesus showed the kind of power he had in the garden. They came and said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he and every one of the soldiers, probably literally in the, somewhere around 300, fall to the ground. Jesus says, don't put back your sword, Peter. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? I mean, Jesus, with his word, can blow them off onto the ground. He could have called angels. He has all that power. But on the cross, he doesn't even voice one single word of it. So when Jesus says, how do we as Christians respond rightly to being wronged? I've left you an example, he says. And Easter is it. He says, Easter is it. He continued instead trusting himself to him who judges rightly. Now, Pastor Walker, that's a tall order. 
I agree. I mean, can you even sometimes, when you're honked at going down the road, not honk back? I mean, can we even, we have honk violence and we can't even control that. Someone say things to you and you're going to tell them, you're going to set them straight. How do you do it? Well, he tells you because there's one more four. Ready? Here's how you have the ability to do those things that he's asking you. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree. Ready? And why did he die? Why is there Easter? Peter says, here's one reason. That we might die to sin. You see what it says? He died for sin so that we could die to sin. In other words, his death means your death. So Easter is not just Jesus has died on a cross. You have died on a cross. You have died to your rights, to your privileges, to all the things that you think you deserve. You, de- you have died to those things. You and Christ have forfeited them like he did. He did not grasp after Philippians 2 said. It was not a thing that he grasped after his position in power. He let it go. And the only way that you cannot honk back and yell back and scream back and cuss back and hit back is if you are dead to sin. But that's half the equation. He says that you might die to sin, listen, and live to righteousness. Only when you have died and you have been resurrected, you're alive. Can you be righteous like that? See, it's an inside-out righteousness. It's like we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, like James talks about. See, it's, if Easter is not, it's just Jesus' death and resurrection, but it isn't yours, you can never do this. You can never do this. Only when Easter is his death and resurrection and your death and resurrection can you die to self and sin and live to righteousness. See, cause and effect. Easter has a cause. Jesus died for me. The effect is I die for him. See how it works? So what does that give me the ability to do, Pastor Walker? What does live to righteousness mean? It means exactly what he's been saying, that I have the ability to get under authority and give my life. What would that look like? Well, he says, verse 25, lastly, see the little, here's our last one, F-O-R, for you were, before you met him, before you came to die and be resurrected at Easter, you were straying like a sheep. That's Isaiah 53, 7 or 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we were straying sheep. But no, notice what the change has been. See the little contrast words? But now, not anymore. We used to be straying. We used to do our own thing. We used to always honk back and scream back and yell back and cuss back and hit back. That was us when we were straying, but not anymore. But now you have returned, watch, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what does it look like when you live out the cross? It looks like a shepherd who becomes a sheep. And to use Peter language, chapter 1, verse 18, a lamb. So the shepherd 
becomes a lamb so that he can die. That's what it looks like. It looks like the cross. See, because the shepherd, because when he was willing to power under, when he was resurrection, God gave him the ability to power over. So he's your shepherd and your overseer. You know what the term overseer is only used in the New Testament other than this reference? It's used of pastors who pastor a church. So you know what it means the pastor should be? A guy who powers over what? By powering under. A guy who loves and suffers and sacrifices and gives and he doesn't have to be treated a certain way or have to have, you know why? Because that's what Jesus does. That's what we do and that's what he's asked you and I, all of us to do. He says, listen, I will power over and I am sovereign and someday you trust me like Jesus did. He committed to his father who judges righteously. I am the overseer and I will take care of all of those wrongs that you've been given so you don't have to power over now or now you can power under. Why? Because I power under and I live and I powered over. So I'll take care of them. You just act like me. You just respond like me. See, that's what we need to be. We were sheep that went astray and now we are sacrificial sheep. So you know how we're going to make the culture different? By yelling and screaming and writing and arguing with people on Facebook, God forbid. By marching on Washington, God forbid. Hear me, by being a Democrat or a, or a Republican, God forbid. That's not how it works. That's not how it changes. You know how it changes? By one person at a time that we love, even if they are completely off in left field sinning against God and care for them and sacrifice for them and speak the truth to them and live the truth to them and care about them and have them in our home and invite them and love them. Yeah, we speak the truth. We stand for it. We don't compromise, but we love people and sacrifice for them like, like Jesus did for you and me. That's how we win that's how it's won. That's how it's done. That's what Jesus says Easter is about. It's not just an event, folks. It's every day. Every day. Let's pray. Father, as we approached resurrection, in the time of the year we remember in a specific way, a very important way, your death for us. May we remember our death with you. That the cross is not just about relationship, it's about discipleship. It's about whether we will follow in your footprints, your steps. Whether we will respond rightly even when treated wrongly. God, we can only do that if we have died and rose again with you. If we are willing to pay the price to follow Jesus. And that is going to be called on us, I believe, much sooner than we might think. So please help us, prepare us as individuals, as families, as a church to truly be like you. May that start now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.